Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. For any musician, certainly going into an audition, you can't just put your head down and just go for it and, wow, look at me. It's like, that's, that's, I don't think that's going to get the gig. You have to be, you have to be a listener and feel, they have to feel supported and confident. They're like, this guy's got it behind. No matter what happens, this guy's solid. And that's the way I always thought, like, I, I want to be a, per, a dependable person. Uh, it's those kind of things, I think, it's just part of being a professional. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I want to thank you again for always tuning in to Industry Standard. I appreciate it. This is something that I started eight years ago, and I just wanted to create something that could be of service, that could provide information, that could help people in the entertainment business and beyond to other professions. Whether you're working in a religious affiliation like my friend Mark Conforti, who does an incredible podcast called Object Lessons, to my dear friends Michael and Rita Purcell, who've worked in the financial industry for a long time, to John Stites, who runs a great, great organization called Operation Comedy for the Troops, and everywhere in between who's listening, all of you make this podcast worthwhile. I love doing it. I love interviewing people that make a difference, that are impactful and inspirational, and I'm really proud of what happens here on this little engine that could podcast called Industry Standard. So if you need to get a hold of me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram, or you can reach me at barrycats.com, and I'll be glad to get back to you as soon as I can if you're patient. And got a great podcast for you today. Incredible. I know you're going to like it a lot with Chad Smith. And without further ado, I'm going to let you know who he is in case you've been living in an igloo 
and you don't know. Chad Smith is an American musician who has been the drummer of the band Red Hot Chili Peppers for parts of the last four decades. Additionally, he is also the drummer of the hard rock supergroup Chickenfoot and the all-instrumental outfit Chad Smith's Bombastic Meat Bats. Chad has also been the host of the PBS concert series Landmarks Live in Concert and co-host with Yahoo Entertainment music editor Lindsay Parker in their own music radio talk show on Sirius XM titled Volume West. Smith joined the Chili Peppers in 1988 and within a few months was recording his first album with the band Mother's Milk. After a successful worldwide tour, the band released their debut for Warner's 1991's Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which was hugely successful. The band released several other albums, and in 1999, the release of Californication has been their biggest selling album to date. In 2012, the Chili Peppers were inducted by Chris Rock into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and a few years later, the band appeared alongside Bruno Mars at the halftime show for the Super Bowl. Smith has worked with many big-name artists, including Johnny Cash, John Fogarty, The Dixie Chicks, Lana Del Rey, Kid Rock, and Ozzy Osbourne, just to name a few. He's also performed on four albums and one live album with Glenn Hughes. Additionally, he released Rhythm Train, a critically acclaimed children's album, which he recorded with Leslie Bixler and legendary actor Dick Van Dyke. In January of this year, Smith opened his first art exhibit, The Art of Chad Smith, featuring 80 of his original extraordinary paintings. Through his affiliation with the Chili Peppers, the band has released three live and 11 studio albums produced 13 number one singles, which is four off from the Beatles record, won six Grammy Awards, and had more top 10 Billboard charted songs, a whopping 25, than any other band in history. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, TV interviewer, radio host, podcaster, premier talk show guest, painter, and a man who has worked side-by-side side with Anthony Kiedis, Flea, and a plethora of some of the greatest musicians of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, live from his Malibu compound, Chad Smith. Oh my God. What's up, Barry? You look great. Whoa. By the way, you look fantastic. This pandemic thing is working for you. <laughs> Telling you me. look good too. You check those guns in at the airport. Hey, <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm so glad I'm Pete. here. Yeah, Pete Cannon, trainer to the stars and unstar. Well, that's where that's where Barry and I met at the gym. Yes, at the Malibu gym. Malibu Fitness. Malibu Fitness. That's right. Yeah. A palatial shithole from <laughs> the PCH how's that hasn't been updated in how's 30 it still years. Still going, fucking 30 years. It's incredible. Oh. It looks like you're walking into the gym from Rocky. Pretty much. Yeah. But anyway, I have so many things to ask you, but I want to start off with this. I always go back to this funny group called the Axis of Awesome. And my favorite thing that they ever did in their lives was this thing called Four Chords. Okay. Where they do 
this thing they're bantering back and forth every hit song is four chords yeah and they're arguing back and forth no it isn't oh yeah let me prove it to you and they start playing and the guy plays the four chords and he's oh that's just one song and then he goes into another one and another one and another one and then their whole act crescendo where they've done 50 hit songs that have four chords Mm -hmm. now for those people out there listening to this that are not schooled in music yeah what is it about music that utilizes such a small foundation but that creates so much diversity how does that work did you know that when you started in music or you didn't know that no i didn't know that of course and and you got to remember barry you're talking to a drummer i don't change notes i just have to stop and start hopefully at the right time but um yeah there are only 12 notes (laughs) so you know in a chord there's maybe five notes or whatever but you know in in rock and roll which is mostly what i do i mean it's 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 rock and roll is a is a young genre of music in the grand scheme of music you know maybe some people say in the 40s but the 50s is really when it came into um you know sort of youth culture and popularity the little richards and the eldest's and and um and those artists that when it came into sort of mainstream but you know that's what 70 years maybe that's a that's a young genre so it's a it's a feeling that it gives you those notes and those chords however they're put together whatever tempo and the main difference and and again rock and roll based in the blues even hip hop music to this to today the, the popular music of 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 uh, youth culture but it's it's what it's the top line it's the it's the melody you could do those four chords even in the same way and there's a lot of different melodies you can sing over those chords and that's what makes that's what makes those songs and makes that music so the hardest thing to do i think is to do something simple and make it original that that the way that you do it or whoever does it and that's the thing that makes it unique whether it's the person's instrument of the voice the voice to me is the is the most amazing instrument of all and you could have the same four chords and have eight different people sing the same melody over it and it would sound eight different ways whether it's from you know Elvis Presley to you know Robert Plant to whoever all different great singers would sing it and it's different because the the melody and how and the 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 humanness of the of the of the vocal instrument the voice is is so unique that that's really that touches people and connects with people now the way that you play those four chords and who's playing them how they play the sound of it has all been explored for all those years and um 
it's it's the hardest thing is to come up with a simple song that's good fast and complicated people can do that a lot and be, do it really well but simple and memorable and and some and unique and something that that is emotional and connects with people that's that's a really great song and that's hard to do hey everybody i hope you're enjoying this episode as much as i am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business that's why i'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I've always been I fascinated with this because I'm in the comedy business and mm. I'm not in the music business, obviously. And in the comedy business, for me, sort of the thing that people don't always talk about which is the most important thing to me in comedy is the story now people might argue well what are you talking about Barry Rodney Dangerfield's jokes were five seconds long yeah but it was like my parents hated me my bath toys were a toaster and a radio right. well that's telling a story right. of how you didn't have a great relationship <laughs> with your parents and all in two sentences yes that's or, hard to do or there's the Chappelle bit where he's talking about the crack baby selling crack or whatever drug it was and that was a long story it could have been a three-minute story with all different punchlines in it but what I wanted to ask you was sometimes you talk about the simplicity sometimes the voice I think can override the story I think of London grammar the song hey now mm her voice is so incredible like you said her instrument yeah. but the song is simply hey now hey now hey now and maybe there's a few lines in there yeah it's the same thing over and over again yet her voice is so extraordinary i remember seeing this radio youtube thing where she came in a radio station sometimes people play in a radio station yeah. and she finished the song and the dj was just like Wow. <laughs> Again, I look at a song like, let's say, The Other Side, which I guess I don't know music. I look at it simpler than Suck My Kiss. Yet, I don't know if as a drummer, one's simpler than the other or one's more complicated. But when I listen to The Other Side, it's like a flowing brook or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And Suck My Kiss is like the rapids. But I don't know as a drummer if it's like you're bored with one and excited about the other because the other one's more up-tempo and you're doing different things or... No, you know, as a, as a drummer and it's and with any instrument, you're, you're serving the song. And, you're, and to me, 
that's the most important thing for any instrument. And, and I can speak from the drums, obviously, and keeping rhythm and giving it the feel and the time and the dynamics. And those are two very different dynamically songs, as you express. One's more flowing, one's more kind of, you know, rapids. I like that. And it would not, it would musically not be a good choice for me to play quiet on Suck My Kiss like I do on the, the verses of, of Other Side, nor vice versa. So if I was blasting my way through Other Side, it would be like, no, that's, that's, that doesn't fit. So you have to, um, as a songwriter and, and, and performing, and, and, and you, it, it's the most important thing always is to take your ego out of it and serve the song, especially the way that I play the drums with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it's, I'm more of a supportive, I have more of a supportive role. I'm not the lead guy, it's not, hey, I'm not the drummer from Rush, or it's look at, you know, it's keeping good time, making it feel good, trying to come up with an interesting part, maybe a, a rhythmic hook, if you will, that is, is will help the song, and, and help get that point across to the listener, but, you know, that's the best thing you can do is just is when you when you can find the right emotion to put into the music or the song from any instrument. But again, drumming wise for me, you, you want the most important thing to me with with rock music um, with drumming is is to make the music feel good. The one thing I can say, and a lot, a lot of people talk about, you know, the, the Beatles being the greatest rock group ever, pop group, and they were a band, and Ringo Starr sometimes is, is well, Ringo, you know, he didn't do anything real fancy drumming, or he didn't, he wasn't like Ginger Baker or Keith Moon or this or that. He did play for the most part pretty simply, but that's what those songs called for. If he would have been busy on the drums in a lot of that music, it wouldn't made sense. It would have taken away from the song. But every Beatles song feels great. You tap your fucking toe and bob your head to every every Beatles song. You can get away with it once or twice and get lucky, but that to me, as I've grown and kept playing and hopefully gotten better as a musician and, <clears throat> and try to be, be a better drummer, a better bandmate, better songwriter is I want this first and foremost I want the song to feel good and whatever that is and sometimes you know that's a to find the right pocket and it takes all the musicians to be able to play together but a drummer has a big part of that he can lead that and um, when you have trust with the other people in the group and we've been together for a long time which is fortunate we played together really well so um, I'm just always trying to do that just strive for that make it feel good come up with something that's musical um and and serve the song that's number one not show off when i was younger i wanted to show off all the time and sometimes when we play live we're all show-offs but on a recorded song that's going to stay there for a long time and, and hopefully um be one that, that's listened to a lot it it's important that um i don't get in the way of the song Tell our audience this, okay? So you take a song like Californication, and let's pretend we record the song 
without drums. Sounds like shit. Okay. We record the song <laughs> like it's uh, MTV Unplugged. Okay. <laughs> and then we give the song to the late John Bonham, Buddy Rich, Keith Moon, Roger Taylor, all your influences. All my favorites, yeah. And we give it to you. You're yeah. hearing it for the first time without drums. Yeah. I take you all into separate areas of a compound to play the drums on that song. Does each drummer come up with a different version of the song? Of course. Yeah. You wouldn't recognize any? No one would be similar. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's a great experiment hypothetical experiment first of all i would just like to hang out with all those guys <laughs> fuck playing, a, playing that song I just, <laughs> bonham and moon we may know you that you might never see us again <laughs> the song would have no drum yeah fuck that song that's how i have um but again all these people are yeah the sound well those are very distinctful stylistic drummers that have their very own unique voices which is one of the things I love about not only the bands that they were in, but the but the way that they played the drums. Um, yes, Bonhams is go, Bonhams is going to be different. Yeah, they're all going to be if they're true to themselves, which I'm sure I'm thinking that they would. Of course, it's going to sound. They're all going to sound very, very different. You could put, like I said, with the vocalists singing over the same music. You put those same drummers or any drummers play the same song on the same drum set on the same set on the same kit that's all going to sound different even if they're saying they're playing the same part because those people and those musicians have such a touch it's it's in the hands and their feet and they're who they are like same thing give a guitar to this kid and give a guitar to that kid this, eddie van halen is going to sound very different than whoever Jeff Beck Stevie Ray Vaughan I mean it's the person and it's their touch and how they approach the instrument let alone the part that they're going to play but the sound that they make on on the drums is even if it was the same drum set I, I've heard the job that that I know a guy that engineered John Bonham and he's like I've seen him play on a little tiny kit and his big drum set that he used with Led Zeppelin and it still sounded like him it's comes from the person and that's what's so beautiful about it. I mean, to go to John Bonham because he's probably my favorite rock drummer and often emulated, never imitated um, by myself as well. I want to play like that. I, I could try as hard. I, I'll never sound like that because I'm not him. Even if I played the same drums and the same beat with the same music, it's the way that I... Look, with drumming, it's four limbs and... and the where the placement and this might be too technical for some of these people no but, this is great <laughs> but where you place where you know where everything is placed on the drum set the four how they work together that makes the groove and everybody's different everybody's thing is different even if it's you know even if yeah i think even if i often i try to emulate you know, I'll be in a studio, so play something, give me something, what would Ringo do, or what would, you know, that kind of thing. And you think, okay, maybe he would play something like this. 
it's not going to sound, <laughs> I'm not going to sound like Ringo Starr. Can a drummer kill a song that could be a hit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because it has to groove. It has to feel good. It has to have a good pocket. It has to have the right part. You could play way too busy. First of all, that'll ruin a song right off the bat. It's distracting. It takes away from the song. Why is that guy playing all over the place? When it just really calls for someone just to keep time um, in rock and roll. Uh kill it i mean a good song i think maybe would rise because of the four chords and the melody you know but you could make it not as it could have been better if it was maybe played in a more musical fashion i i do that sometimes i'll fuck up a song <laughs> tell me a song throughout your career that you and the members of the chili peppers it was like an afterthought it was like a it's on the bubble. Let's just throw it in. We can put it here. It'll hide it here. And it became a huge hit. And tell me a song that all of you were like, this is going to be the greatest song we ever Probably wrote. got more of those. And Wait it, till they hear this. And it was death. Crickets. That's like a joke. You think the joke is going to kill. We were making our record, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, 1991. I'm laughing already. All those years ago. And we were working with our producer, Rick Rubin, for the first time. And, it's, and you worked with him for 25 years. We did. Recently, yep. the last album, you didn't work with him. Right. We worked with Danger Mouse, but we worked with Rick for many, many years. And it's the first one that we did with Rick. And we had a lot of songs, but up until that point in our career and the songs that we had written, they were more kind of fast and... and Anthony had rapped a lot there was some singing but mostly it was we were still in our and I hate to use terms or whatever but you know that kind of punk funk thing whatever um, but we were getting better as songwriters and Anthony's was starting to sing more and I was kind of new for him but you know he we were we were growing and changing and trying to to get better and and write better songs and john frashanti was in our band the second record that he and i had made together and he was writing more melodic stuff so he he retired but then he came back no 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 he, he we had done mother's milk record in 89 and then blood sugar with 91 but blood sugar we had toured together as a band I had just joined and John during Mother's Milk. We toured and wrote all this music for Blood Sugar together. So we were really a good unit and we were moving forward with this lineup. And so we had written a bunch of songs and getting ready to record. And Rick was over at Anthony's house. And usually the way we write is we, we, we jam or somebody's got an idea or a part and we put the music together first. And then that will inspire Anthony to write lyric and melody over So that. the music is always first. It, at that point, it had been, yep. Is that the normal way that singers, songwriters, uh, musicians Everybody's work? different. Everybody's different. Is it more rare to do it that way or more common? I don't know. I, I would... If you're a band, I would think that it, that would be more of the norm. But again, I, I'm, I don't... You know, who knows? If you're a singer-songwriter, maybe it's like, I got a melody. Oh, let me put some chords to it. That might be the more normal way. But with the way that we work, mu most commonly music first, even to this day, 
and then that will inspire him to write words and melodies over it. So, but one day Rick's at Anthony's house and, and he's like looking at his pad of paper where he'd been writing lyrics and, and stuff down and he, he said, well, what's that? And he's like, oh, this is this poem I wrote, you know, it's just something I just, you know, wrote for me, you know, it's not anything. He's like, oh, Rick being Rick's like, that. that's really cool, you know, I'm reading it and he's like, you should take that to the band and see if we can come up with some music for it. And, he, and I don't think that he'd ever done it that way. Like I say, it was usually the other process. And so John, our guitar player, came over or Anthony brought him said you know I've got these I've got this poem that I written and I don't think it was even all finished maybe just the verses and it was the lyrics to Under the Bridge and he had it all written down sometimes I feel like I, and John started coming up with chords and brought it to the band and we were like and at that point like I say we were like fast and hard and you know it was like mm, this is kind of mellow you know this is not that we didn't like all kinds of music but we'd never that wasn't like our thing you know but again we were like let's be open to everything so we record that song and I'm thinking yeah it's pretty good I don't know it's kind of mellow but yeah it's all right and 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 wasn't like oh and we had had another song called Soul to Squeeze and another song called I Could Have Lied that we recorded all for that record. And we're like, well, we can't put three mellow songs on the fucking, people are going to be like, Chili Peppers went soft. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we were all in our 20s and, you know. And, but thank God for Rick and, um, so we recorded everything and and it came down to like which ones which can't put three on which two do we like it's like okay under the bridge let's put that one on i think mo austin from warner brothers came and said yeah that's a good song like somebody not connected to it didn't know how it happened no emotional thing yeah i like that that's a good song okay and we put i could have lied on it too so it could have easily been voted off instead of Soul to Squeeze, a really good song, or another one of our big songs, but again, a softer song. So it was just the timing of it. But if Rick hadn't seen the little poetry that Anthony wrote, and we hadn't have like decided, yeah, let's let's that's one of the slower ones we feel is okay. We'll put that on it. And that changed our whole career, that song. Incredible. Yeah. Just real quickly, tell me one and all of you were like, <laughs> right, this the is one, the one, and oh. it might not have become a <laughs> probably songs that never even made the record. <laughs> we would see it with the way we work with <laughs> and work with Rick. We we write a bunch of our songs together and get them to a certain place where we feel like okay, it's just we got a verse and a chorus or maybe a bridge enough to where give him an idea. Here's what this this piece of music sounds like maybe not all the words or lyrics but melody and words and and we'll write for a long time and then he'll come in and again he's got no he, fresh ears comes in and we'll play him the songs and almost always it's like 
oh man, wait till you hear this one. And I can't, I couldn't say a name of one, <laughs> but like, we just love this. So he's going to fucking love this. <laughs> Whatever. We fucking playing. What else you got? <laughs> and you're like, what? That's great to know. And the background's going to be like, I bet you did that. Like on Californication, it's fine. It's good. But and Rick's always looking for like, he's really good. You know, obviously one of the greatest producers at some, he's really good at finding that that special thing of a piece of music or a lyric or a melody. That's the good part. Make something out of that. That was the throwaway bridge. No, 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 no. That's fucking good. That should be your core. So that, you know, right around that. And we'll be like, oh, here's this thing we did on Tuesday, this jam. Oh, let me hear that. We'll play. That's great. That's great. Great. That's his favorite thing. Great. Make a song out of that. We're like, really? How uh, often does the band say, listen respectfully on this one, this song is going in the album. So do the best you can with helping us produce it, even if you don't like it, because this one's in. Right. How often does that happen? It, do it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen where we feel strongly about something and he's not he's not a like oh, it's my way or the highway like he's like you know you hired me to do your record and this is what i think and you know this is and and he's not the guy that says i just don't like it well what don't you like it i don't know i just don't like he he has reason why well, i think that this is not as good as that or do you guys have the relationship in 25 years that when you say we want this on and it doesn't do as well or if he says something and it does well however it works yeah do you have the kind of relationship with me like hey what do you think now about that song? <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey, i told you no we don't really do that but there with a with an album worth of rec songs and we, and we tend to put a lot of songs on our record also we feel it's important that it's a you know it's a whole thing we don't look at it as just singles or whatever it's it's the vibe so maybe the record needs this element this this kind of thing and and maybe it's not going to be a hit song we don't never think like that but but we really like this kind of thing we feel it it warrants to be in the record and it it it's part of the tapestry of of that of these collection of songs and that's important to us and he understands that and I never understand this, and please explain this to the audience. So we could pick 10 random albums that you love. They might not be your albums. So let's say yeah. one of them's one of your albums. I doubt it. And then we take nine other albums. Chances are every album has a different amount of songs on it. Yeah. Something that I never understood. I presume if I'm a musical artist and I can put an album together with nine or ten songs that I'm proud of, but I have six or seven that are in the mix or whatever, I'd like to hold those for the next album. Yeah. So now I've got four other albums that are out there as opposed to one album that has 17 songs on it, and now I don't have content for the next album that can help me kind of ease into it that I can bring from another. It's like on Saturday Night Live, you could do a sketch that makes it to the dress rehearsal yeah. and it gets cut for the live show 
and occasionally, three months, six months later, that sketch goes back at the table read and it gets on the show. Yeah. How come most people don't have a set number of songs? There's no rules. No. I think everybody's different, and, and I, I can speak for, for us, is that we write the music at the time that we're going to make the record. We don't use songs that we wrote three years ago or two years ago or for, first you of all... You never revisit. We might revisit... A, uh, we have tried to revisit... Like, I really like that part. Never, You never, you know, came together for whatever reason and bring back elements of it, but never a whole song... And the reason is, is because we're the band that wants to capture the uh, snapshot of where the band is at that time. We don't write on the road. We maybe make little ideas. And I like this bass line or this chord progression. I'll record it on my little phone and I'll bring it up later and it'll change once it's presented to the band. But we've always wrote music in a time frame that is a that is a snapshot of where we're at as a band and as musicians and songwriters at that time, and that that's I think part of the reason why you see a, a evolution and a change and, and a growth that not that some songs don't sound like other songs or in that style or vein because that's what we do and what we like, but it's all in the spirit of being authentic in that moment. And I think that's something that we all kind of agree on, and yeah. and that's that. I, I I like that. Now other people have songs from. I love playing old songs, but writing, we're different people and different musicians, even a year ago than we were. Now, like we're writing songs right now for a new record, and the music that we would have written a year ago. Uh, I mean, it's a different situation because John Frusciante is, is rejoined our group again, so um, it's different having him back in the band. But just in general, it would be different from a year ago than it is today because we're just into different shit. There's really good s songs that we might have come up with that I remember, like that never got that never got to fruition, and either Anthony didn't sing out or whatever happened never got recorded. And I'm like, oh man, that one, I really like that one thing. I We've got some good stuff in the vault or whatever you want to call But it's a democracy and everybody has to, you know, there's compromise and everything. But there's some stuff I'm like, I wish you would have wrote into that. I really like that piece of music. But it's just the way it goes. I always thought to myself, why no band? And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Why no band in history that had two decades under their belt didn't go in and, okay, we're going to take one song from our 11 studio albums that didn't make the cut. I'll tell you who did that. And we're going to do that, and we're going to release an album called Didn't Make the Cut or whatever. And okay, you didn't name it that, but Van Halen's last album that they did with David Lee Roth. I was a big Van Halen fan growing up. And I played in another band with Mike Anthony, the yeah. bass player in this band called Chickenfoot. And when their record came out a couple of years ago, whatever, I don't know the name of it, and Van Halen hadn't made a record in, I don't know how long, 10 years, 15 years. And Dave Lee Roth came back in the band, 
it was Eddie's son was on bass, but it was it was Roth and the Van Halen brothers. And Mike's and I'm listening to the record with Mike. I was you hear new Van Halen? He goes, No, I got it, man. Put it on. He's like, I remember that song. <laughs> oh, they just changed the this part. That's one from 1978. They rehashed old Van Halen shit that didn't make the cut. But it was never announced that way. No. Change, you know, change a little bit of it, maybe change the course. And he went, he's like, maybe like three of the 10 songs were new and the rest of them were all old songs. He's like, yeah, we recorded that and never made Van Halen 3 or whatever it was. So people do it, but I just like, why you know I, we're looking for we're just trying to go forward we did that and a million times Barry people come on, why don't you do a song like suck my kiss and why don't you do California we did it it's good I love it but I don't want to do it again and some bands get caught up in that like that was our hit we've got to do one just like that and it's never as good and just repeating yourself. I remember Bachman Turner Overdrive in the 70s. I every love song. Bachman Turner Overdrive. Every song was the same kind of rhythm of <laughs> The first band they ever saw in concert with Blue Oyster Cult and, and the Outlaws. Yeah, Springfield Civic Center. I think I 1975. Blue Oyster Cult was my 75. That was my first concert. <laughs> Blue Oyster Cult. Only, only I, I liked them. Was that the tour that you? No, saw? Kiss was supposed okay. to open for me, and I was a teenage Kiss head, and uh, Kiss canceled, and I went and Blue Oyster Cult and saw Kiss later in '75. But you know, 13 year old Chad was like, "This is the greatest thing ever." Loved it. I have so many more technical things to ask you before we get into some other stuff. So, you, of all people, developed an app almost before apps were popular. I was, early, I was early on the app. My app was terrible, though. No, but it was an unbelievable concept <laughs> about drumming GPS. Right. Could you explain that to you? Because I thought it was really fascinating. Hey, you're the only one. Nobody gave a shit. <laughs> Nobody fucking gave you. I had like two people. Well, I'm one of them. You were. It was you and my mom. Yeah, it was one of the things with with apps. You to get people to go to your app, you got to have something that. I mean, I'm no marketing genius, but something that's interesting, sort of daily or weekly, or that wants them to keep going back. Just not pictures and videos and Instagram type shit. But at the time it was, well, where are the, my favorite drummers or drummers in bands, where are they playing and with whom and when? So you could look up your favorite guy or girl and go, oh, they're on tour with Santana. And so Cindy Blackman is in Springfield on May 22nd or whatever. So I think that was kind of the concept behind it. Is, am I right? It was also a what concept else where it was like a six degrees of separation for the greatest drummers of all time and your influences as well. Oh. So I thought it was kind of interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, well, you're, the, you're kind of the only one, Barry. Tell me the difference between keeping a marriage together and keeping a band together. <laughs> Very similar. Without the sex. <laughs> um... 
which is a big proponent which with, could be the with, marriage with <laughs> with, with marriage um you know being in a band is like is like being married for sure and you know you hopefully you have a common goal you got to be on the same page a lot of the time I'm Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Don't lose your place. I just had to tell you one of my favorite okay. jokes of all time from okay. Sarah Silverman. She said, Do you know what it's like in a relationship, ladies? You're with your man. You're working towards that common goal, <laughs> his orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's good. That's true. Well, we're working toward, if we can make a good song or a good performance, that's, that's a, that is a form of an orgasm for sure. Um, everyone's spent and satisfied and except you know you mutually right you all want to come at the same time <laughs> um but i think i think that it, you know in general it's, it's just there's compromise when you're in a when you're in a band situation um you're not always going to get what, what you know the way that you want it or you think it should go um the per, you know personalities people are are they're kooky, eccentric, idiosyncrasies and whatnots. And when we were younger, we used to, we were a little, we weren't, we were hard on each other, a little harder, I guess. This, uh, you know, you could hold a grudge against someone and I'm not going to talk to that guy and fuck that. He said this or did that I didn't like or whatever. And usually it was something stupid. So you play an entire maybe three concert dates without speaking to the guitarist or... <laughs> well, hopefully it wouldn't go that long. But back then when we were younger and, and, and you know, less, I don't want to say mature, but... Uh, uh, or grown up, I don't know which 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 is worse or better, but you know, yeah, you would you would you could kind of be that way and be a, a little dick and be a and and then it would some it somehow it gets worked out. Obviously, you when you started together in God knows when it yeah, was eighty three eighty three yeah you weren't sitting around saying to each other till death do us part no. There's no way that you thought that you guys were going to be together for 37 no, years. No way. Okay. No way. And you're tw you're in your 20s and and you know the first 
three Chili Pepper records were not you know, commercially successful. We know we were this underground kind of college band. I think that's the thing that everybody should know that's so fascinating because people in comedy or writing or music and everything, okay, well, if my first song doesn't do it, then I'm out. My second doesn't. When I interviewed Judd Apatow, eight projects right. failed before he got his first thing going. So I think it was your fifth album where things started going but you were still touring with your underground fans yeah. in venues that were between what clubs yeah but they were like some 500 seaters some thousand seaters with people standing that would have been yeah in the early days a thousand would be great yeah yeah no we played everywhere bars clubs little yeah anywhere anyone would have us anyone would somebody would pay us enough to like put gas in the van and cram into a holiday end room but it, um, you, you know, you, you'd, you know, to go back to the marriage thing, it's just, it's just like there, there is, there is things that you have to be, if you want to be able to do the thing that, you know, Hey, what we do is, is when we're together for whatever reason, we make this music and we make this sound and, 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 and. I think one thing about our group is we do have our, our, a pretty fairly unique sound. Our singer has a unique style and voice and the way we play together. And at the end of the day, if you think of that and like, okay, there's something, there's something good that for whatever reason, everybody's different and that's why it works. And I think lots of times any team, whether it's a sport or a band, it's the Stones or the Who, everyone, you know, oh, they hated each other, but, you know, together it was this thing. There is, there is something to that. And so if you can think of that, maybe not in real time when you're pissed off at that guy because he did this and you're mad or thought this way or said this or acted this certain way. You may have four people, very distinct, strong personalities in a group. There's going to be clashes. It's, and, but that's part of what makes it work. Instead of going, I'm going to divorce you, fuck you, you just work through it. And as the older you get and the more things happen, the more hopefully you grow and get too very, very, you know, new agey. But you, you kind of figure out like, okay, let's, we should talk about this really fucking bummed me out or this, I don't like this or why did you do that or this hurt my feelings. <laughs> you know, we don't have therapy sessions some bands do but there is a, a way to be like you know we gotta clear this air so we can do what we do in your opinion the greatest gig you ever did in your life and in your opinion not one where let's say it's a country where people don't speak english or not one where maybe outside of the venue there's rioting going on but i'm just talking about whether it was coming up was there ever a situation where you felt you bombed as a band and conversely are there moments coming up that you could point to where this show was a turning point mm. in our careers yeah um the bombing part You know, I joined the group in 1988, and 
again, we they were, Chili Peppers weren't a commercial success or anything, but we were playing concerts and 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 we weren't you know opening up for anybody. We were doing our own shows. They were small, but mostly the people that were coming to the shows were coming to see us. So we didn't really have that you know. When I think of bombing, often it's like, oh, I opened for, you know, whoever. Black Sabbath, they didn't want anything to do with us. We got booed and bottled, and you hear those stories. But we were pretty fortunate in that way. But I can't, with, to go, uh, uh, you're saying a foreign country, um, I, the one thing where I felt like that we were bombing was that one time the first time we went to japan in 1990 and we played a club in kawasaki the club cheetah and of course language barrier and everything and it was we'd never been there and we were not you know it was on our mother's milk tour not 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 big but like they invited us to play we're coming japan oh my god crazy cultural difference everything about it go play to go play the show and it's standing room, maybe 800,000 people. And, you know, the Japanese are very different culturally, very polite, and everything is, you know, bowing and, and, and very different than what we were used to at concerts with people jumping on stage and stage diving and yelling and throwing shit at us. And that was the sort of our usual crowd experience. But having a good time, that was the way they were expressing themselves. So we go do this gig, and we're playing, and we're playing our th- as hard as we can, and fast and loud, and we would stop, and nothing. <laughs> Crickets. I mean, you could hear the fucking pin drive was so quiet, and we're just like, <laughs> not used to that, you know, in between, you know, and, and usually, nothing but they're just staring at us all of them not moving staring star song they're kind of jumping around bang same thing every song we're like we're look and like after about four or five songs we're, we're fucking stiffing we're terrible they fucking hate us this is the worst oh my god we're fucking going home play the show get through it at one point the fucking power went out it was just it didn't go well we finished the show we're coming we're in a little room in the back the promoter comes in the back and we were ready to be like oh we're so sorry i don't know what happened he's like oh cherry pepper best show ever great we rove you we're like what we're like they go crazy for you and we're like japanese people that's my poor Japanese person but they that was their way of I guess showing their appreciation that's just culturally how it was but at the time on stage when we were playing we were dying a, a, a rock death but that that's when I remember for sure and that was and that was a bit of a turning point and then a great a great gig Again, in the earlier days, in 1992, um, we try we we try to go to places that not everybody would go to. 
we just kind of our mentality were like, you know, no one's going to Beirut. Fuck it. Let's find us a gig in Beirut. No one's playing in Northern England, Belfast, Belfast. And we're like, fuck, let's go play for those people. And are you sure? Our promoter, yeah, yeah, we want to play. Oh, you're going to have to stay in the most bombed out hotel ever. And we're like, yeah, it's okay. You know, we were young. We didn't give a fuck. So we go and we're crossing the border, I remember. And we all are kind of nervous in our black van and we get to the border of Northern, to cross over to Northern Ireland. We'd played probably Dublin and somewhere else. And then we're all in the van and the guy, machine gun, military guy. I can't do a good Irish accent. Let me see your papers. Like my tour manager hands over, everybody gets their passports out and hands them to him. Guns were like, and he's somehow on the on the on the work thing. He sees red hot chili peppers. All of a sudden, his whole demeanor changes, and he turns up in, and all of a sudden, off in the distance, behind a giant camouflage of trees and plants, this fucking giant tank. Top pops out, and this guy pops out. It's the fucking chili peppers. <laughs> what? The guy gets out of the fucking tank, runs up. We're taking pictures. We're signing. They couldn't have been nicer. They were so fucking happy. What the fuck are you doing here? And we're like, we were like, for about five minutes, we were like, this guy is going to fucking shoot us. <laughs> we go play the gig, and it was a, a small th- place with a balcony, and that shit was off the fucking hook. They were so happy to have a Western rock band, let alone us doing our crazy thing, jumping off the balconies on the stage. They didn't give a fuck. They were like breaking bottles over their head. I mean, it was mayhem, but like they were one of the most, there was borderline like, whoa, this energy is like serious. But they were having the greatest time, and it was one of the most memorable gigs I've ever done. It was fucking awesome. They were so happy we were there. Guys would run up to me. I'm playing the drum. They would jump on stage. I fucking love you, man. I fucking love you. They'd jump off and dive off. You know, ah! And I'm like, okay. It was, it was awesome. So, like, Fantastic. Some, yeah, sometimes, you know, music, music, it's, a, it's, a, it's it can... Sometimes, you know, it's entertainment or whatever, but sometimes people changes their lives. I've had so many people come up to me, this song's mean so much to me, this song got me through, this song I got married to, you know, little songs we made in our basement, or Flea's basement, or garage that, you know, affect people everywhere. It's amazing. It's, it's you don't, uh, sometimes you kind of have to go, Wow. All right, I want to go way, way back. Uh-oh, into the time machine. Time machine, I want to talk about where you grew up, what was the dynamic financially, how you got through it all those years, wherever you were, where I always say everybody starts off yeah. in their bedroom with in no the money. Bed, in the bedroom or the basement, for me, and, yeah. And then what was your first inspiration to getting in this crazy business? Yeah. I grew up outside of, of Detroit, Michigan. My dad worked for Ford Motor Company. And um, I had two older siblings. One, my brother, 
Brad is two years older than me, and he he started playing the guitar when he was pretty young. My sister played piano. She's five years older than me. But your dad and mom were musical. N- no, didn't play me. My mother played the piano. My dad was not loved music though, but did not play or, you know, he was he he. Uh, but he loved music. So in my house. Early on, I would hear, before I started listening to my brother's records, it was a a heavy uh, dose of Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Frank Sinatra. And at that time, it was like, this old people's music, this is my parents' music, I hate this. But hindsight 2020, pretty pretty good stuff. Then, when I was about seven, I started, I wanted to... My my brother and sister would kind of play together. I don't even know what they were playing, but but my first kind of recollections is I I want to I want to be I want to you know I don't want to be left out. So I think I just had a penchant for for hitting things, and it was a typical pots and pans kind of kind of thing. You know, I like to hit things, and. So I was in the the, the family, the, the the Smith kids band, and we would pantomime to Beatles songs. And my dad, there's a, a, a ice cream company called Baskin Robbins. And it's out, it's out here too. Thirty one flavors. Thirty one flavors of Baskin what, Robbins. There's no room for growth there. It's just thirty one. <laughs> they and really nothing. pigeonhole themselves. What if they came up with something new? They can't change the fucking marquee to thirty two. Vanilla to add another flavor. So Baskin Robbins, which you scoop the ice cream out of those tubs of of what were they? What are they made out of? Cardboard. And my dad went in the garbage behind the thirty-one flavors and stole the empty used cartons of ice cream and brought them home. And I started beating on those. So my dad is a thief. <laughs> <laughs> you think there'd be something at the Ford Motor Company that you could uh... right a brake drum? So, yeah, no, I, I I got and put a bunch of masking tape to buy you know duct tape on them, and I had Lincoln Log Kids toy wooden. Those are my sticks, and so only the, you know finest equipment at the beginning. But I went through those pretty quick, and you know this is this is late sixties. This is sixty nine. I was seven, and so I, I just really uh, like making noise and stuff. But I loved music. I really, I, I from an early age, and then I, and then I, you know, had paper routes and shovel snow and cut grass. And I finally graduated, got myself a, 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 a actual drum set, a little Slingerland kit. It was $160. I came up with 80 and my parents kicked in the other half. If you get half, so there's a lot of shoveling and a lot of cutting lawns. And I was, so that would probably be like 1970. And I, and I, and I, and that was, and then I was listening mostly to my brother's records. And he was a real English blues rock, hard rock guy like the zeppelins and the stones and queen and and 
David Bowie and The Who and Humble Pie and any mostly English, Deep Purple, bands like that. And he had all those records and I listened to all those records and Led Zeppelin and all those drummers are great drummers. And so that that's kind of where I, that was my first real musical uh, influence. And we then banging around and then we, we had a band you and your brother. Me and my brother and Lane Linder and Dave Stender who played bass, terrible bass player, but he had the gear <laughs> and we could rehearse at his house. His pants were never home. And we would play Light My Fire and Stairway to Heaven really, really bad. And our band was called Rockin' Conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> and we, were, we got a gig to play the school dance class not a dance but dance class where you had to learn how to foxtrot and and we couldn't play in three which is like a foxtrot one two three one two three we didn't have any songs in and three and we got fired from that, that was first <laughs> your first gig you got fired from. yeah do you keep playing anything it's like oompa oompa we're like no <clears throat> no but we can play fire by Jimi hendrix really bad so and that that's that I was just off to the races and I played sports and and other things and 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 loved it but up and then up till high school in the basement I would I you know would play and I would play to records I would put records on and so so you'd mimic the beat of- yes and the sound and why and like I put on a Led Zeppelin record and I would, it was like I was in Led Zeppelin or in the style of and want to play and sound like that now you're a righty does it matter if you're a lefty on drums or it doesn't uh the drummer one of my favorite drummers Ian Pace from Deep Purple is left-handed and I always thought it was super cool they look so different Phil Collins is a lefty and and no I was I was a righty all the way um and yeah i just wanted to emulate those guys i just thought they were so cool and by the time i was in high school you know sports went by the wayside i wasn't that good and i was really into music want this is what i want to do i'm pretty good at it i always got to play with older guys like in high school in 10th grade i played with a band with guys that were seniors and you know, to be accepted by older guys and my brother's friends, older, and started smoking pot and girls and like. But you never took a music class or a music lesson. I didn't take a music lesson in high school. And junior high, there was music. There was band class. There was there were there were two bands you could be in, kind of the beginning band and then the the symphonic band. Um, but when I got into high school, my high school, my public high school, had. Marching band, uh, concert band, a symphonic band, two different levels, uh, a jazz band was like Eleanor Rigby. <laughs> we weren't really that jazzy. We weren't playing Miles Davis songs, but and a music theory class. So there's like four subjects that I could get good grades in, and that's the only way I graduated from high school. Bear, I would have never. I would fuck this biology and math ah! no fucking way so the only way that I that I that I graduated from high school was because of music but weren't you a rebel didn't you run yeah. away oh yeah 
totally. I was. Where'd a, you go when you ran away? I lived in a car in tenth grade, between tenth grade and eleventh grade. I lived with, in a car with my friend Jay, who was the bass player, who was going off to college at the end of summer, and me and my parents were not. I was not. Did they know you where you were. No. I so, was I was a bad I was a so bad. they thought you could have been dead yeah but somehow I did work this is, like how did you pay for this, food I'll tell you this is bad this is bad kids don't do this <laughs> I worked at a gas station slash car wash gave me a job I don't know, for some reason. we were we were basically in a stolen Nova <laughs> and we doctor up the license plate. And this is at the time when you could buy shit with your with your gas card, right? If you went, you could, oh, give me some chips and da-da-da-da-da, and I'll put it on your, your whatever, Chevron card. So I worked at this gas station's car wash, and my dad somehow found out I was working, and one day he showed up to get a car wash. And I was like... What was that day like? You know, my mother was more the task master you know stay-at-home mom my dad working and and i more had issues with my mom um my dad you know he he was just he wanted to make sure that i was he didn't we didn't have much of an interaction so he didn't say come home nope really nope no he just wanted to know that he we had this mutual i okay you're here you're you're okay yeah i see you that that was it um, because I was, I was, I was, I was that guy. And I gave my parents a real hard time because I felt like <laughs> through many thousands of dollars of therapy, my parents didn't understand my older two siblings were, kind of, they were kind of did well and went, went to school, did pretty good, came home when they were supposed to, didn't stay out all night. You know, I would steal my parents' cars, crash them, do this bad. I was rebel. And I'm like, you don't get me. I'm not like them. I want to do this. And they're like, no, you have to do this. And they were trying to fit kind of a square into a round hole. They so, want you to go to college? Not by the time I got to high school. They just want me to get to high school. <laughs> <laughs> Which was by the skin of my teeth. And so I just want to be a professional musician. I was like, fuck, I know what I want to do. I want to be a professional musician. Graduated from high school in 1980. By July, I was in a working band. I was like, I've made it. I'm a professional musician. When you Six say days a working a week. band, what does that mean? In Detroit, it was playing uh, a band called Tilt. And Tilt played three sets a night, six nights a week in, in the Detroit area like the tri-county area east side west side and there were enough clubs originals or covers some originals which was great they actually had a record at one point they were older an older older guys i was 18 and barry i thought it was the fucking greatest thing i'm like drinking getting drunk girls playing rock and roll getting home at four in the morning this is fucking awesome where were you living but that then i had come home because i graduated from high school so and your my parents are letting you come home at four in the morning. You know, the, the, the bar ends at two, and you got shit to do afterward. What they they by that point, and I got to hand it to them. They they were like, okay, this is what you want to do. We don't necessarily agree with it. What are you going to get a real job? Blah blah blah. But for that, I don't know if they thought it would last for the summer. Or how much what, money were you making? One hundred and sixty-five dollars. One hundred and sixty-five a week. So yeah, approximately. You're, you're nothing. Seven hundred a month. 
I didn't have to pay rent, but but that went on for a, quite some time. I went from band to band to band to band. Because bands broke up and then you'd audition for another band. Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you about the auditioning process for a band. Yeah. Is it always the same for you? Because what's weird about auditions for acting, it's very rare where you go in and you do one audition. They're like, okay, you got it. Then you got to come back for the producers. Then you got to come back for the studio. Then you got to come back for the network. Right. Even if you want an hour special, a lot of times you'll, you know, come watch you and they're like, that's great. We're not going to pull the trigger just yet. Well, let's do another one. Let's see how you tighten this. Sometimes yeah. they give it to you. So yeah. when you audition for a band as a drummer, is there one day where the band holds auditions and you find out about it through a newspaper at the time or whatever and you come in? Do you come in and do they give you one of their songs or do they say, do whatever you want, do three songs, whatever you want, and we'll play them? Or do they have to tell you, hey, listen, you can't do those songs because we don't play those songs? Mm. Or do they want you to just play alone, solo, with nobody around? No, usually the situation for me that I've been in with a band, it's usually either word of mouth or answering an, an ad, uh... You know, and and either there can be a cattle call thing where there's a bunch of drummers. Depends on what the band is, the musical situation. With me in Detroit, it was except uh, with the first band. I don't. They didn't know who I was. I th- I think I had heard f- from somebody. Tilt's looking for a drummer. It wasn't like I don't know where they found out. And and but there were other people that tried out. And you go in and you and. Often they'll say, learn X, Y, and Z songs, whether it's their songs or cover songs or whatever. And often they'll have the same, they'll, they'll have, they'll play the same songs with the same guy so they can hear that. Um, that's kind of common. But it's been different. One time, you know, I get the gig, you're the guy, that's it. Let's go. We'll start rehearsing Tuesday. Other times it's, okay, sounds cool. We'll call you back. We're trying some other guys. It depends. From Tilt until your audition <laughs> for the Red Hot Chili Peppers yeah. in 87. 88, yeah. 88. Yeah. Until then, how many times did you audition and not get the gig? Um, I kind of, humbly, I, I got, most usually we you get. You got every gig. <laughs> This is what I think the audience would love to know. I don't. I, I can't it, remember it, being like no. And often it would. I, it would be something like. It wouldn't be like oh I'm gonna try to play in this wedding band. You know it was like it was a, it was always like I want to be in that band or that's a cool thing. But it all ties together I think with every position in the entertainment business. I don't care if you're a writer, or an actor, or a comedian, a magician. It all comes down to exceeding everyone's expectations and pretending they have the highest fucking expectations but i think what i'd love our audience to know even though drumming is such a specialty i think they'd love to know what your process was for an audition that had you winning every single time and beating out everybody what do you think your process was Besides being talented, because we all know, and yeah, I, I hate that, to say this, no, 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 we all know that if somebody's a great hang, and if they're not as good a drummer as you, or 
if somebody's a great drummer but they're an asshole, chances are the great hang is going to make it. Every time. What are you doing when you're walking in, from the moment you walk in to the minute you finish, that you feel is the winning formula for getting these jobs? You know, when opportunity comes, it's always good to be prepared, as prepared as you can. As you can, and others, some situations are, they'll throw stuff at you and you have to be fast on your feet, which is also a good thing to be able to see. But, you know, remember you just said it, like, there's guys that can play circles around me, Barry. But if you're an asshole or difficult or I think that I I think I'm pretty good at kind of reading the room so to speak like uh, um, and and you know if you really want the gig you're gonna you're gonna you know be a bit of a chameleon I guess at first Um, but you need to be authentic as well and I think that people can tell them people are not and that's important. So it's like be yourself and have confidence. And I always like, if I'm going to blow it, I'm going to blow it really loud and like with with gusto. Not Part of my drumming thing is like I play very powerfully and, and um, that's just my style and the way that I like to play rock music, you know, when it's appropriate. Um, and I think being musical, a lot of drummers sometimes will not be great listeners. And I think that's the most important thing for any musician. And certainly going into an audition, you can't just put your head down and just go for it. And wow, look at me. It's like, that's, that's, I don't think that's going to get the gig. You have to be, you have to be a listener and feel they have to feel supported and confident They're like this guy's got it behind no matter what happens this guy's solid and that's the way i always thought like i i want to be a, per, a dependable person in a in in a musical sense and also as a, as a person it's like i'm not flaky i show up on time i got my gear together i'm not i don't where's my snare i don't know you know it's those kind of things i think it's just part of being a professional and I learned that at an early age because, I, like I say, I started playing professionally right away and it was like, yeah, the, you know, there's luck involved, timing with the Chili Peppers. It was some luck, timing, the opportunity came, but I was prepared. I had done the eight years of Detroit clubbing. I got my 10,000 hours, my, my cavern club Beatles stuff shit. And if I hadn't done all that, you know, people are like, oh, you showed up in L.A. and six months later you're in the Chili Peppers. And like, but I had, I had, I had done, I, I was, you know, it just, it happened. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. 
He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain 
it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.